Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chattuck. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen and Michael Trout conclude their two-part discussion on his fifth video, Is There Anyone In There? Adopting a Wounded Child. All of Michael Trout's videos and books are available at the TKC store at tkcchattock.org. Get a 20% discount on all Michael Trout materials when you type Trout20 at checkout. That's T-R-O-U-T and the number 20. This is Karen Buckwalter, and I am delighted to be having Michael Trout coming back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast for another series. This series will actually be about a variety of resources that he has produced. So I would like to share a bit about his background. Michael has degrees in both philosophy and psychology, and he was uh, trained with Selma Freiberg in infant psychiatry as part of the Child Development Project of the University of Michigan Department of Psychiatry. He's been in the infant mental health field since 1968 and in private practice since 1979. Since 1986, he has directed the Infant Parent Institute, which is an institute engaged in research, clinical practice, and clinical training related to problems of attachment. He was the founding president of both the Michigan and the International Associations of Infant Mental Health, was on the charter editorial board of the Infant Mental Health Journal, served as regional vice president for the United States for the World Association of Infant Mental Health, and served on the board of directors and as editor of the newsletter of the the Association for Pre- and Perinatal Psychology and Health. In 1984, Michael won the Selma Freiberg Award for significant contributions to needs of infants and their families. In addition to publishing a number of book chapters and journal articles, Michael Trout has produced 16 clinical training videos that are used by universities and clinics around the world, including a six-hour video training series called The Awakening and Growth of the Human, Studies in Infant Mental Health. He comes to us with a wealth of wisdom and experience, and Michael has become a good friend of mine as well as such a respected colleague and mentor. He's one of the most influential people in my professional life by far, and I'm just delighted to be opening a new series with him today. So here we go. Sought after speaker and trainer Karen Doyle Buckwalter and trauma-informed school specialist Josh Carlson are coming together for a one-day workshop you don't want to miss. May 1st in Denver, Colorado, Lessons from the Toughest Kids features practical, evidence-based strategies for working with challenging children and adolescents. You'll experience engaging lectures, discussions, and role play with proven strategies from over 25 years of working with some of the nation's most complex children. Go beyond theory and book knowledge with Karen Doyle Buckwalter and Josh Carlson May 1st in Denver, Colorado. Tickets are on sale now. Visit tkcchattock.org or find us on Facebook.
Well, hello, everybody, and back uh, with you for part two of looking at Michael Trout's film, Is There Anyone In There? So, Michael, we're getting ready now to, uh, we, we've talked about the preface, which was quite lengthy, and set the stage for why you made this video, who you were thinking about, um, what you had hoped it would do, what some of your vision was. Now let's move to some of the things that are actually in the video. Love to, and I think I've already mentioned, but I'll repeat that the format is a little queer and a little narrow, and I hope would not feel exclusionary to those who don't fit exactly into what I'm saying here. But the format is, uh, I'm asking listeners to imagine a mom and a dad at an airport, at uh, what do I say, gate 12 or something like that, waiting for a child to come from an orphanage overseas, expectant, not necessarily prepared. Um, and the, the, the I try to describe then, from the mother's and father's point of view, the greeting. I do some kind of goofy things. The whole film starts with uh, a baby being held um, in a funny kind of position and emerging from the shadows, uh, coming up into full light while Haydn's creation plays in the background. <laughs> but. <laughs> And so, Michael, how, how do you think of those things? Oh, give me a break. I just have too much fun doing, uh, making matches of funny things like that. But it's, you're not a filmmaker by, by trade, and those things are really effective, I know, from having watched these films many times. And as I keep saying over and over, when you have a... Uh, film that never loses its impact, no matter how many times you see it. That is quite a film. And that's the case with these films. So don't just laugh it off. I mean... Well, anybody in the, in the audience who has sung as I have, Haydn's creation so many times, you know, the choral presentation, will, will get it immediately. It'll seem obvious. Oh yeah, that would be a great pick. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the mom begins um, by simply saying, The question first formed on my lips at the airport. And the question, of course, that's being referred to as the title question. Is anyone in there? And she goes on to say, I didn't even know who had spoken such a question at first. I mean, what sort of thing is that to ask of an eight-month-old? That's the age of the child that's coming on that plane. I looked around to see if anyone heard it. In other words, she's imagining that it slipped out. And then I knew it had only been spoken on my slowly crumbling heart as I looked into the eyes of a child to whom I had just committed the rest of my life before I ever saw him. And now I had just seen him and saw that I couldn't see him. And that comes from testimony from a great many parents who speak of the first moment that they cast their their eyes on the child and saw his eyes and saw his eyes were not looking back at them. They were his eyes were on them. They saw his eyes, but it was as if, as many parents said, as it was as if no one was home. Yes. And then the parent speaks the words Can one ever be prepared to encounter another human being? who may not have all their parts. And then the script says, I thought babies came untouched, pure, innocent, 
I thought they came having not yet been harmed by experience, or even if they were harmed a little, nothing would really stick in their tiny brains. It doesn't, does it? So we're now maybe uh, two minutes into life with the new child and already look what how much conversation has gone on in the mom's mind, maybe even in some unspoken words between the mom and dad as they look at the baby and look at each other. And maybe one is wondering, do you see what I see? Do you feel what I feel? Wait a minute. What's the matter here? What's the matter with us? It's just a sweet little kid. He'll get over it. Maybe it was a bad plane ride. And all of that condensed, parents have told me, into the first two minutes of their new life with this new, new child. And then the mother says, I want to say to my husband, more often the optimist than I by nature, but my God, is he blind? Honey, I think there's been a mistake. See, I wanted one that would love me back. And parents have told me, that's an awful thought, isn't it? I, I don't really mean, well, yeah, I did. Did I mean that? Did I really expect that to be loved back? I didn't think I did, but maybe I did. And that question doesn't occur, of course, until to most parents, even parents of difficult children, because there's a presumption that's in the contract. I'll love you, you'll love me, we'll have hard times, but we'll stick together, and it'll be reciprocal. Maybe not right away, and maybe not always, but more or less, it'll be reciprocal. Yes, yes. And I think that um, parents don't, often understand or are not fully aware of when you don't have that reciprocity, how hard it is to keep going. Because, you know, we, we all know who are parents listening and you and I, parenting is so hard. And if there's not some kind of positive feedback loop, even a little, just even a tiny bit, um, when you feel like there's no feedback loop refueling you, it's it's easy to get depleted pretty quickly and feel like you can't go on. And there's something funny about that idea that it is or should be reciprocal. We we parents often feel a little shame about it. And and it's right to feel a little shame about it because in fact babies may not give back to us right away or they may not give back to us in ways we recognize. Um but the truth is, this is this is lovemaking. Falling in love with a baby is uh, is very much like falling in love with a, a partner. It is difficult and stumbling, but it's also dependent on reciprocity. And none of us would ever be ashamed of giving up on a relationship with a partner, a partner to be, uh, from whom we got nothing. Right, and, and this is um, a place to make mention of, um, and we are uh, releasing um, neurotransmitters, dopamine, oxytocin, all of these things are happening in our brain and being released that allow the process of falling in love 
um, with babies and partners. And, um, you know, John Balin and Dan Hughes in one of their books talks about how this, these neurotransmitters are not flowing that way because of this lack of back and forth. You know, the brain goes into a state of fear um, and, you know, they use the term blocked care. And I think that that's such a helpful concept. It's almost as though the parents are now being held hostage to their brain chemistry, that their brain chemistry is not allowing them to fall in love. And sometimes I talk about this. It's sort of like, you know, because we get these parents in our office, Michael, as you know, they, they do look depleted and they can seem almost mean. And if they have this charming child and you're thinking, my gosh, it's still, you're the grown up. I mean, even if this gets really tough and so they can look very cold and they can look very distant. And so, you know, when I talk with parents and even therapists, I say, think of it this way. It's like having to fall in love with someone you have no chemistry with. It's kind of impossible. <laughs> but but where you're, um, there's some sort of commandment coming out of the sky that you have to do it anyway. Yes. Normally you would just walk. Right. But not here. Here you have no. to do it anyway. Right. You have to do it anyway. And so, and we have to find ways to help them do it. But it's, I think when I compare it to a romantic relationship, people can, they can relate to that better. Um, because everybody loves little children, right? You know, um, but when you think about it, that you just can't, you can't manufacture that. But we somehow have to help them find a way to. So in this congested moment at gate 12, with so much going on, and we, we're not even up to three or four, maybe five minutes now, the mom says to herself, as if she's trying to push herself forward, I am a mother after all. I am here to claim my child. And so now, exactly one minute after encountering my son for the first time, I reach for him. It's all slow motion from here on. And I got that idea from parents who had described that moment of reaching for the child for the first time. The child is probably in the arms of a transporter, maybe a leftover from the orphanage, maybe a familiar person, maybe not. But anyway, doesn't seem that bad at that moment. And they tell me that it's as if everything slowed down at that moment. Sometimes I picture that they reached out and the camera just suddenly went into slow motion and everything just got real draggy uh, while you wait to see what's going to happen next. So then the mom says, as I extend my arms to my precious baby who has so needed to be rescued and loved. By the way, she's right about that. And she's thought about that ahead of time. Maybe even talked to a lot of people, friends and people at the church about that. And they've given her lots of support for a child who so needs to be rescued and loved. And so she extends her arms to the precious baby who has so needed to be rescued and loved. He responds to me. He now comes alive. 
He now acknowledges me for the first time by shrieking at the top of his eight-month-old lungs. And so this conclusion of this slow-motion movement into touch and holding for the first time, the finale is he shrieks. And I just got goosebumps, not in a good way with that. Um, and it's even more powerful in the actual video. And I think of so many times when I've been with parents and um, <laughs> created enough safety for parents to really be honest. And they'll say something was not right from the beginning. And they'll, they'll talk about moments like this and they'll talk about these horrible plane rides home where awful things would happen either the the, the, the very often the child was so upset and hyperactive and terrified and shrieking the whole way home and they thought they would never get through this flight and then they thought but when we get home you know he or she's gonna like calm down and settle down and of course they're afraid we're strangers and then they'll say, but it didn't stop. Which is a really frightening prospect. Um, because as you said earlier, we're thinking, well, we'll love them and it'll be okay. And that's what they need. And, and in many cases it is, it, you know, that, that, that makes a tremendous impact. Um, but in certain circumstances, it doesn't seem to. You know, I'm, I'm, there's something about the way you just told that story that I'm imagining parents who, who end that plane ride that they have that's so awful, uh, stumbling into the door of their home where awaits grandma who knows Selma Freiburg, who understands terror in babies and has the wherewithal to say, um, it's not you, sweetheart. He's really scared. Uh, why don't you go wash up? And I'll sit with him for a minute. That might make a difference that would last a lifetime for that child because it changes the formula, it changes everything. Yes. Freiburg would, would sit with a blind child who was tactilely hypersensitive, often from a long stay in the NICU, sometimes from simply being not touched, uh, as blind children often were not. Yes. And when being transferred or set down, a blind child will often <clears throat> shriek. And Freiburg would be there to say, don't worry, sweetheart. Mama will not go away. And that teeny-weeny little inconsequential intervention uh, could, could have made, could, did make the difference in those children's lives. Because in, in just that, whatever that eight words it, or it was, she's saying to the child, I get it. She's saying to the mom, it's not you. She's saying to the mom, actually, it's you in a way you would never have thought about. 
he's actually saying not I hate you. He's actually saying, don't leave me. Since I can't see you, if you put me down, I won't have you. Mm. I won't have you anymore. I'm so scared for you to put me down. Don't leave me. And moms were staggered by that interpretation. It had never dawned on them that this wild child scratching and biting at their neck and screeching at the moment that she was putting him down into bed was actually saying that. So that's the kind of intervention that's needed and is usually absent. Yes. Someone to reinterpret what the child is doing. Yes. Yes. So important. So the mom goes on to say, and now slow motion grinds down to hardly moving at all. As I see my son's back arching and I feel his muscles stiffen and the cacophony of the shrieking, stiffening, no, don't give me to her, symphony weakens my knees and my resolve all at once. I hope any listener, including, of course, moms and dads, but also others who work with them, might say at that moment, oh my gosh, were I that mom or dad, I, I don't know what I would do. Maybe I'd make the same conclusion. Maybe the child really isn't saying, it really is saying, oh, don't give me to her. And for someone to be around to, to say words, something along the lines of, this child hates mothers that go away. And he assumes that you are like the other seven that came before you and will go away. It's not that he hates you. It's not that he's saying, oh, don't give me to her. He's really saying, oh, if you give me to her, will she go away? Yes. And then after whatever we've got here, five or 10 minutes, this little introduction at the airport, the mother doesn't know what to do and just repeats the same um, refrain. Is there anyone in there? Will I, when I take this child home, discover the human being that, that lives in there? Or will I discover what his eyes seem to suggest, which is there's no one at home. Mm -hmm. Terrifying. So Michael, at the, at the end of each of our talks about these films, we talk about the reception of the film. And I wrote you, as soon as I saw it, I was just blown away. I, I just thought, oh my goodness, showed it to everybody at Chaddock, started showing it in every training I was doing, showing it everywhere. Um, and so I wrote to you and said, this is amazing. And you said, 
Well, I haven't gotten a lot of positive emails about it. So. Something sarcastic like, yeah, you and some guy in Idaho. <laughs> <laughs> And it's not just because I'm a groupie, a Michael Trout groupie. It is an amazing film. So tell me what happened after the release. Well, all I can think of is that agency people who had budgets to procure the film for their own training and for their parents uh, looked at it and said, oh, this is way too hard. This is... This is too negative. Um, surely it can't be that bad. Uh, one, one agency person said to me something along the lines of, yeah, I tell my moms, just hold it in there, just keep loving them. And that was her reaction to the film. As if she just ran over everything I had just tried to teach and went back to the original thing. People like that are not gonna buy this film, much less make it available to the families. And without that support, families are not going to find it, first of all. Yes. They're not going to be able to afford to, to buy it. So they were afraid this will scare people away from adopting, and there goes our international adoption program. I want to go back to a part of the script that's relevant here for this part. It says, um, I'm therefore silent, and I try to remember the mantra, love will always triumph. So the foster mom's trying to, you know, get get her, her herself to, to feel more confident and kind of stand up, and I can do this, give herself confidence. Um, so she says, I'm therefore silent, and I try to remember the mantra, love will always triumph. Is it true? It must be. A scam of this magnitude could never be perpetrated upon we rosy-cheeked, eager, adoptive parents, could it? Yep. And you know, the, the funny thing about that idea is that while I'm the first in line to laugh at it, because it has tripped up so many parents and really, really butchered them, because they thought if that's true, that love will always triumph, then what is wrong with me and our house? So while I've been one to be sarcastic about that concept, the truth is, it's true. Love will usually triumph. The point is, we have to appreciate how many barriers love has to go through and around and under to get to the child michael i love that i love how you're saying that why would any child uh just just take it just take love just take the drippings uh from somebody else when he knows how unlikely it is it'll keep coming how much smarter he would be to be in charge of his own. I think we talked earlier regarding one of the other films about children that hoard food uh, when there's no reason to because there's lots of food, but the child makes the fundamental decision that's identical here, which is it would be far better for me to be in charge of my nutrients, in charge of the food I get and in charge of the love I get.
if I just let people love me, that would be stupid. And this is what parents are up against. And you and I both know a bunch of them who managed to get to the other side. We do. In fact, in the ensuing weeks, we'll be talking with one of them, uh, our good friend, Lori Thomas, um, who will be fun to have on the show to um, with us as we move on after this series when we're going to be looking at your books. Well, thank you for another stimulating, enlightening, fascinating conversation. And um, so I love being able to talk with you and benefit from all your years of wisdom and practice. And I know the listeners are loving um, being able to listen in um, on these conversations. So I appreciate you being here again today and I look forward to our next time. Wonderful, thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future episodes. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. 